Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Well, welcome back, and thanks for listening and making a commitment to your learning. We sincerely hope that you are doing well. We are your hosts. I am Yvonne Brandenburg, and I am joined by the lovely and talented and amazing Jordan Cooper. <laughs> Hi. That's why you wanted to take over this episode. I, yeah, that's why I wanted to start it, because I was like, it's about time that I get to do this back to, for you a little bit, so... Oh, well, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> it's been a pretty good week, right? Yeah, not too bad. Um, it's it's really, really hot here in California at the moment. I feel like everybody's kind of in the middle of like this bizarre heat wave and we are definitely feeling it. And I'm having bizarre weather because this morning I have thunder and lightning. So if there's like thunder sounds in the recording, I apologize I can count on two hands in the last 10 years <laughs> that I've had thunder and lightning here. So this is very weird. <laughs> um, right. And for once it's not actually, like, it's actually like not thundering. I know. I was like, <laughs> like you usually no have right now. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's so weird. Like I'm looking out my window and it is really dark out there, which is crazy because it's, you know, nine 30 in the morning here. So it should be hot and bright and sunny and it's, gray which is crazy yeah. to me apparently we swapped weather because it's like super dry this like today and super sunny and oh we did swap it's always weather. super hot yeah mm-hmm. but yeah it hasn't rained in like two days so it's like it's dry <laughs> that's why our humidity is only 66 percent instead oh. of like 96 percent and then i'm over here going oh my god it's 68 percent it's so humid <laughs> it never rains here so that's why I mowed my lawn this morning because I was like my front yard was still in the shade and I was like oh it's actually like kind of breezy and I didn't like sweat that much then I got to the backyard and like I was in the sun and like I got very sweaty very fast but like I was like yeah oh, it, it see was yeah nice I can usually handle like 100 degree weather at my house because it's dry so like you don't actually sweat because it evaporates so quickly but yeah yesterday was sweaty and this morning, I'm not even outside and I'm sweating. It's gross. I don't like it. I want See, my because... weather back. <laughs> this is why I can't move to the Midwest, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. I so badly want you to move to the East Coast here and like, you know. I don't like humid. I don't like it. It's icky. We'll just agree to disagree. I actually don't mind like the desert. I liked it when we were in Arizona. You liked but it I in like Arizona it. for ACVIM? You're crazy. I girl. did. I loved it. It was like 118. I loved it. Like, I like being hot. My in laws are in town this weekend, and they're like, he was helping put in a garage door. Like, so he's cutting a hole in our house, and like, he's like, it's so hot here. How do you guys get anything done? And I'm like, over here, like, mowing the lawn. And I'm like, this is great. Like, it's such great weather to mow the lawn. Like, Ugh. I love it. I love the heat. I don't, uh, I don't mind the heat when it's dry, but, but Phoenix was too hot. I liked Phoenix and like, it got chilly here one day. And when I say chilly, it was like 
70 because it was like the day after the <laughs> it was it's like the day after 70. the tropical storm <laughs> oh yeah God, and it was funny. like breezy and just so welcome to the internal medicine weather podcast <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right we gotta stop talking about the weather that's really funny <laughs> <laughs> can you but tell we haven't difference. talked in like a couple days i know like we're right? just well i anyway. feel like I... let's move on yeah, anyways, I'm excited about the thunder and lightning, and I can watch it um, from my window while we're recording. And hopefully it does not affect us recording, because that would be a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> so. Because who knows how electricity is there. Yeah, right? Weather. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it hasn't happened enough for me to even remotely know how this will affect anything. Um. So a little bit of housekeeping this week, uh, Jordan and I, we're, we're also a little punchy, I think, because we've been working really hard on some stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. We mentioned it, I think, last week, but we'll mention it in the beginning of this episode. Um, we are opening up our membership next week. I can't believe that's like in a week. I can't. So you're going to be listening to this. If you listen to it live, it's Tuesday. Sunday morning, August 23rd, we're going to be opening up our membership. It's going to go live. So if you're interested for two weeks only though, well, no, I mean, it'll be open after that, but the launch price, which will be a, you know, discounted price will be for two weeks. Yes, You'll still be able to join after that. It'll just be more expensive. So it's internal medicine for vettexmembership.com. So you know, keeping with our, we're keeping it, you know, easy to remember, um, internal medicine, for keeping it long membership. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. <laughs> um, but if you go to the website, you can check it out, um, see all the stuff that we're offering, you know, we're going to have CE. So race approved CE, if you're here in the United States, um, we are, I'm more, I'm working with Laura, um, because we did find out for CPD for the UK, um, this would definitely qualify for CPD, uh, and which is continuous professional development is what mm-hmm. CPD stands for. Uh, and I'm trying to, if you do use their app over there in the UK, uh, I'm trying to get the, the QR code to work. So, um, I've been kind of emailing back and forth with Laura, um, just to make it a little easier for everybody. If, you know, if you have the QR code, then you could just scan that into your app for, um, for logging your, your CBD, um, which is actually kind of funny because I was just telling Jordan this before we started recording, I have to renew my license this month because, you know, it's, it's my birthday month in California and that's when they renew licenses and I have to upload, uh, <laughs> documentation of the CE that I've done in the last two years, which I'm kind of freaking out about because I moved. And so now I have to find all my certificates. (laughs) So yeah. But if you join the membership and do CE through the membership, it'll keep track of it for you. So if you need to (laughs) download and upload them anywhere, you'll be able to. I'm I'm looking forward to that actually. (laughs) Right. So definitely check out the membership. Um, like we said, it opens August 23rd. Um, it'll be discounted for two weeks and then it goes up to kind of our, our, our regular price. Um, and it'll include CE. So, you know, yes. 
Lots of CAE. I think as we're recording this, there's 51 hours on there right now. Is that what we have right now? It sounds about right. Somewhere, I think so. Somewhere in that time time, time frame. Yeah, somewhere 50, in the, yeah, exactly. 51 hours available. So obviously you don't have to do all of them, but it's a good chunk. And, um, you know, for the price, we, we kind of calculated it and it ends up being... I think with all the stuff that we have approved that it's not on there quite yet, but with all that, it's going to end up being like mm-hmm. two to $3 per CE hour. Um, yeah. So it's super affordable and it's a great way to, you know, convince your boss to pay for it. So you don't have to pay for it. Yeah. Anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We have one shout out this week. This came via email, which I appreciate, which came through the like newsletter. You can actually hit reply and we do get those. It's mm-hmm. nice. It's easy. Yeah. Um, so this was from Stephanie Gee. I hope it's Gee. If not G. It could be G. Gee or G? Sorry, Stephanie. Stephanie. Um, But I do appreciate your email. (laughs) So Stephanie said, hi, Yvonne and Jordan. This month has definitely flown by. I've been listening to the podcast every time I'm in the car on Spotify. I'm currently on the DKA episode. I've learned so much from you guys and have, I've already been applying what I've learned to my job. You're my first podcast. So thank you guys for such an awesome podcast and resource. It's given me more motivation to pursue my dream to get my VTS in cardiology. Keep it, keep it up. Mm -hmm. You guys are awesome. Yay. Thanks, Thanks, Stephanie. Stephanie. Yeah. Going um, after our second love. (laughs) Cardiology. Yay. Yeah. And we looked at Spotify because, um, you know, I think Spotify just recently in the, in the last few months kind of opened up to podcasting. Um, and right now they don't have a way to review on Spotify, which, you know, if you do use Spotify and that's something that you want to do, I think they have like one of those, like, vote up new processes things on their website so if you want to review you can go say yes please review um because they may add that as a feature at some point because i think i think that's one of the things when i'm looking for podcasts i i check out the reviews and i see you know Mm -hmm. what what is everybody saying about it so um you know if, if you use spotify um let them know and then you know if you use spotify and you want a sticker and you can't review on spotify you can always do recommendations and let us know. So, cause we have yeah. plenty of stickers to give away. So many stickers and you just sent mm-hmm. out some new stickers, didn't you? Uh, I think I've got two that are ready to go out, um, on Tuesday, which is my next day off. Um, but I sent out stuff for the membership, which was kind of exciting. Yay. Yes. <laughs> So this week we are continuing our liver series with uh, gallbladder disorders. So we're going to be talking about inflammation um, of the gallbladder, gallbladder mucociles. I I kind of adore me some mucociles, which sounds Mm -hmm. stupid. Um, And then polyspaces. I think I like mucociles because it's one of those things like on ultrasound. I'm like, I know what that is. (laughs) So, And it's weird because I think mucociles weren't really identified for a really long time in veterinary medicine. And now I think we know what to look for. So I feel like we do yeah. see more of them, but um, yeah, they're interesting. Upon my research, just actually not very common in humans either. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I did huh. a lot of research on this episode and most 
most of this episode is going to be discussing gallbladder mucosils, but cholecystitis just kind of goes along with it. And I'll touch on like little bits of cholecystitis, but mm. mostly gallbladder mucosils. But yeah, I, I learned well, I mean, that it's not super common in humans. Yeah. And I mean, cholecystitis is just an inflammation of the gallbladder. And I feel like gallbladder mucosils are extremely inflammatory. So um, yeah. So when we talked about um, cholecystitis, I think we touched on it last episode a little bit when we were talking about anatomy and physiology, but it's, it's inflammation of the gallbladder. And we, and I know we talked about the, the bile ducts. Um, so the bile ducts in dogs and cats, um, there's the common bile duct in, um, in both of them. The difference, we talked about it a little bit last week, difference is for dogs, there's two openings into the duodenum. So there's the bile duct opening and there's the pancreatic duct opening. Whereas with cats, the pancreatic duct like goes into the bile duct and then opens those together open into the duodenum. So there's a, there's a difference between the two, which is also one of the reasons why when cats get pancreatitis, it can cause inflammation in the gallbladder mm-hmm. or if they have like gallbladder stones, it can cause pancreatitis. We can, again, if we're blocking that duct, that, that causes the inflammation. So cats, unfortunately are predisposed to like having both at the same time. Yeah. Um, so that's just something to kind of keep in mind when we're talking about anatomy stuff. And we, we, we talked about it a little bit last week. Now we have, um, when we're talking about cholecystitis, there's both necrotizing and non-necrotizing. And um, if you've ever seen a necrotizing uh, cholecystitis, it is it is not pretty. <laughs> I mean, anytime that there's <laughs> the word necrotizing involved in like some yeah. sort of disorder, Ooh. you're like, this is awful. Like necrotizing yeah. pancreatitis. Oh, oh. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> so necrotizing, if you, I mean hopefully you guys remember what that means. It's just basically like dying off of tissue. Um, Mm -hmm. and so obviously that's, that's bad because once tissue dies, it doesn't come back. Yes. Tissues regenerate, but once it's dead, like we can't fix it, we have to get new tissue. So having that necrotizing and, and, you know, process happening in the gallbladder is all sorts of bad. Um, and so that's when we, you know, have to do like surgical intervention and a gallbladder mucosil. So a mucosil, um, so seal is C E L E. And anytime you have a seal, that means it's like a closing off, like think of like a seal, which is S E A L. <laughs> um, so gallbladder mucosil is literally the, the bile becomes mucusy, um, and almost like gelatinous instead of liquidy. And so what happens is it gets all together and it forms this thing where the gallbladder can't express the bile. And so it's thick and abnormal accumulation of that material within the gallbladder. So, so that's, you know, when we're talking cholecystitis and gallbladder mucosal, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. And of course I used one of my favorite websites for not necessarily like the mucosal part, but like just for like why cholestasis occurs and just some mm. cool pointers on like looking at lab work and stuff. So eclinpath.com, um, they have some really good information. So cholestasis uh, is just 
it's stasis. We think about when our guts don't move, we call that GI stasis. So this is gallbladder stasis where it, it just can't express and can't move. So cholestasis is pretty important and it actually can cause some abnormalities in our lab values that we'll talk mm -hmm. about a little bit further, further into this episode. Um, but just kind of a remembrance of our anatomy and physiology. So the gallbladder is a storage place for bile within the liver um, during fasting periods. So it stores bile while a patient is fasting and then bile is used to aid in digestion. So when patients are eating, it's supposed to, mm -hmm. As I say, you talked about it last week, that hormone that helps with expressing or causing, you know, some peristaltic waves within the gallbladder yep. <laughs> to express. Um, so that's too, like, we have to remember that as technicians, when we're looking at like an ultrasound and our patient is fasted, mm -hmm. we should see a gallbladder. <laughs> yes. It should be there. It should not be totally gone. And the longer a patient goes without eating, a lot of times the bigger the gallbladder gets. So if you've mm -hmm. got a patient who's just anorexic and not eating in your hospital, sometimes we'll see these giant gallbladders and it's not that necessarily that they're obstructed. It's just, they're not being stim stimulated to express and, yeah, and, exactly. you know, get rid of the bile. So. Exactly. And then, so mucus seals, um, when the gallbladder develops like decreased motility, decreased bile flow, um, it can also develop decreased like water absorption when there's just kind of all of these factors playing a part. So your gallbladder is, is not moving. It's not expressing like it should. Bile's not flowing out. Um, and the water uptake is changed. It become, it, it becomes more concentrated, right? So yeah. there's, it's the, the bile acids, those are actually salts. Um, and so yeah. you need the, the fluid to get in there to make it dilute enough to flow easier through the ducts. Um, yes. So when we'll, you don't have that, it can lead to just an increase in that biliary sludge. There's a lot of times we'll see gallbladders and we're like, it looks sludgy in there. And it looks, it has a, versus being like a nice black gallbladder because fluid mm -hmm. is black mm -hmm. and that's what you want to see in the gallbladder. Sometimes you'll see this like hyperechoic substance within the gallbladder. Yeah. Um, and sludge is different than a mucosil, right? Yes. Sludge yeah, is just yeah. like a little bit of grit. Like if you've ever looked at like a bladder and you see stuff floating around in the bladder and you're like, Ooh, there's stuff in the bladder. That's kind of what the gallbladder looks like. Right. The, the, mm -hmm. the other way to tell that it's not forming a mucosil versus sludge is because we usually do our ultrasounds with them on their back is stand the patient up, put the probe yeah. on there. If things move, then it's sludge. It's not a mucosil. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's free moving. It's just some stuff in there that's thicker and more echogenicity than, you know, it should. Um, yeah. And we and use changes of to like, help with that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and changes of like the lining of the gallbladder wall can actually be caused by a number of different diseases but changes in the, the lining of the wall can actually change the consistency of gallbladder secretions as well. Because again, you're, you don't mm. have that ability to uptake as much water as normal. And it's gallbladder is also kind of sensitive. It's, it, it's a little like the pancreas. <laughs> it likes consistency. Right. I think the entire um, body just likes consistency. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> 
but an increase in like hyper secretion. So an over secretion of mucus from the gallbladder can actually leave the gallbladder with like a more thick gelatinous bile as well. So if, if it's secreting more mucus, but it's not really getting out all the bile with it, then you're going to be left with just a more thick, like, I think of like slime when, cause my kids make slime a lot. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I think of slime or like jello. Yeah. And this can be caused by diseases like Cushing's disease, IBD or hypothyroidism. There's actually not as many studies on the IBD or hypothyroidism as there is Cushing's disease. Yeah. But Cushing's yeah, sometimes I see like to... a mucus deal and I'm like, this dog has Cushing's. And then we look at the adrenal gland and we're like, yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yep, we'll deal with that when you're feeling better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But over time, that thick bile accumulates within the gallbladder and then it can actually occupy the entire lumen and even invade into the ducts of the gallbladder. But yeah, I mean, once that thick bile accumulates and it just keeps accumulating and then it goes down into the, the ducts of the gallbladder, it makes things very difficult to move and pass around. Um, Versus cholecystitis is just inflammation of the gallbladder wall. So the bile itself in there should stay okay, except for when we kind of already talked about if there's changes to the lining of the gallbladder wall, then that can also change the consistency of the bile within the gallbladder. Mm -hmm. But cholecystitis is its own separate thing. Um, And that's commonly caused by like bile stasis contributing to irritation of the wall, which leads to thickening of the gallbladder wall. So this can occur, Mm. we'll talk about it a little bit more, but say there's like a gallbladder stone down within Mm. one of the ducts. And then, so that causes stasis and you can't get rid of the bile adequately, or you're getting rid of smaller amounts of bile. Like it's still able to move past, but just not as well Mm -hmm. um, or not as efficiently that can cause inflammation of the gallbladder wall. The gallbladder does not like it when bile just sits on it. <laughs> no, and I mean it, it it makes sense because bile is meant to break down things, right? So mm-hmm. if you have stretching of the the gallbladder, right, then you potentially decrease the amount of protective like mucus cuz the mucus is there to protect the tissue of the gallbladder from the bile. Um, and so if you, you know, if you stretch it too much and there's not enough mucus, then what happens is some of that bile starts actually eating away at the, the tissue of the gallbladder. And that's when things become a problem, right? You got ruptured gallbladders, you've got extra pressure if like there's a, there's a stone. And so, you know, it's, it, it can be very bad, very quickly. (laughs) Um, so it's just one of those things that we keep a close eye on these patients and we try to dilute the bile as much as we can, or get that stone out of there, whatever needs to happen. Um, you know, decreasing inflammation as much as we can systemically. So, yeah, exactly. And mucus seals tend to be more common in dogs. It has been reported in cats and ferrets, um, (laughs) which I've ever seen it in a cat. I think I've seen one in a cat and it more Mm. commonly affects like domestic short hairs. Um, I know my internist said that he used to work at a place that did exotics. And so when he would ultrasound ferrets for them, it was always for a gallbladder mucosal or adrenal gland tumors. (laughs) And I'm like, I was going to say adrenal gland tumors. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, but it typically affects dogs. So we'll be mostly talking about dogs during this episode, but it is diagnosed in older adult dogs, small to medium sized breeds. And then breed predisposition tends to be that of Shelties Mm -hmm. are the most common breed that you see that in, but you can also see it in Cocker Spaniels. And then especially in the Shelties, it's thought to be secondary to like a hereditary disorder, such as hyperlipidemia, um, which kind of blows my mind because I'm like, you think we would see it in more schnauzers than two, but. I definitely have seen it in a lot of schnauzers. Yeah. Schnauzers and Shelties are the ones that I see it in. Cocker Spaniels. I don't know if I've seen a ton of Cocker Spaniels with, with, I think I've seen a few. Um, I think so because like Cocker's, that's when we see a lot of like Cushing's disease. See, I Um, think of white fluffy dogs. I do too Hmm. i guess i don't know i've seen it in a few cockers Hmm. but um it's also thought in shelties to be more of like a gene thing not just the hyperlipidemia but like Mm -hmm. a a genetic weird gene thing that causes their gallbladder to yeah exactly yeah Um, we had a we had a um a family of shelties that were um they were agility dogs and so they they just like had you know really um very specific breeding for this line um and we like there were probably four of them within that line that all got gallbladder mucus deals like it was so crazy and um oh, that'd be a bummer yeah once we found like the first one we actually screened the other ones and we were like oh yeah. so um you know one had emergency surgery the others <laughs> we were able to do a little bit of a proactive, you know, start on medications and monitor mm-hmm. really closely. And I think two of them ended up having gallbladder mucosils despite all the preventative stuff. So we ended up, you know, taking yeah. the gallbladder, but it wasn't as critical at that point because we were monitoring so closely. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It's pretty crazy. Um, history on these patients, these patients actually tend to have very non-specific symptoms. <laughs> you know, like internal medicine cases. Right. Um, so, and a lot of times though, too, these patients very well could be asymptomatic. Um, a large mm-hmm. number of these patients actually are asymptomatic, especially in the early stages of a gallbladder mucosal, but they can develop like a decreased appetite, vomiting, lethargy, abdominal pain, especially if it's kind of very progressed. Um, diarrhea can occur, but if a mucosal leads to a full biliary obstruction, abdominal pain and icterus are can definitely be noted. Yeah. We've had a couple of patients um, come in through the emergency department and the owners think they have back pain. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Like, Oh, they're, they're hunched. They have back pain. And we're like, Nope, it's not the back. It's the gallbladder. It's Um, such a common misconception about like the back pain versus abdominal pain. It's like our pancreatitis cases. Like, well, they're, they're hunched and like, they don't want to move. And yeah. Yeah. Um, some of these patients can actually present with a fever. It's not super common, but it can occur. Um, however, if the gallbladder has ruptured, then these dogs usually present with a fever, lethargy, acute abdominal pain. So it's one of those things where it's like a very, my dog was fine. And then all of a sudden they're extremely lethargic, acting very painful. They have a fever and they can even possibly come in in septic shock. Well, and, bile. and it, I was going to say, you have to remember <laughs> that cavity. it's bile and yeah. So having bile in your abdomen, it, it's painful because again, bile is meant to break down tissue. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're breaking down things in the abdomen. Plus there's the infection component. So now we're septic. 
Um, and, and, and so this is like, this is all bad. <laughs> um, let's just say we see fluid in the free fluid in the abdomen. They, they just mm-hmm. look horrible. And then yeah, a couple like, of ruptures, not fun. No, no. I hate on the they, other hand, hate when they come in all septic and horrible. Oh yeah. Cholecystitis though tends to affect middle-aged to older dogs. Um, again, there can be both necrotizing and non-necrotizing. Both of those can be caused by trauma. Um, non yep. I had a dog come in. So like yeah. a hit by car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hit by car, kicked, fallen down the stairs, fell off the bed. We had um, a police dog come trauma. in that um, he was like running some of his trials. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know if it was like a bench or something like that, but he like kind of, you know, that classic like hit something right in the middle of your gut and you're like kind of thing he hit into his abdomen and it just like he ruptured his gallbladder and he was like ouch he was like a two or three year old german shepherd so it was just like at least he probably yeah (laughs) he did he did and especially because it wasn't you know he didn't have a bunch of disease pre pre trauma so it was just trauma it was just it was just a perfect hit (laughs) right to the gallbladder yeah it was pretty crazy Non-necrotizing uh, cholecystitis can also be secondary to infectious diseases, systemic diseases, of course, neoplasia, um, <laughs> or obstruction. Because again, we talked about how the bile sits in there too long. It's just very, very erosive and it can, it can really just eat away the gallbladder wall. Yeah. Um, necrotizing cholecystitis can definitely be caused by neoplasia. Bacterial infection, um, thromboembolism, same thing biliary obstruction or a mature mucosile same thing it's it's if that bile mm. is really sitting in there for a very long amount of time and that stasis is just so severe it can cause some necrotizing cholecystitis but bacteria is commonly cultured from our necrotizing cholecystitis patient uh cholecystitis patients so uh like Yvonne yeah. was saying when that when that does rupture a lot of times i mean like and sometimes you we'll talk about it a little bit but you can do that like preventative surgery before it ruptures and then our surgeons will culture it anyway just because yep. you should well i mean because again it's what we're talking about is bacteria and the mm-hmm. most common bacteria is e coli because mm-hmm. e coli may creep up the duct and go into the the gallbladder because yeah. bacteria can do what it wants. <laughs> so if there isn't, if there isn't a lot of stuff flushing out the bacteria out of the gallbladder and the ducts and you know, it's stasis, then that bacteria potentially can go up the gallbladder duct. And so, um, that's why we always culture, we'll cal- culture the bile in the gallbladder. And then sometimes we'll like culture the, um, like the wall, of the, the wall of the gone. Yeah. Yep. Differential diagnosis list. I'm only going to run through a few because really it's almost every internal medicine disease, especially if they're just showing very vague symptoms. Um, Mm. But definitely on the list, if they're showing maybe some more of our severe symptoms, pancreatitis, hyperadrenocorticism, so our Cushing's disease, hepatitis, toxins, um, cholelithiasis, so our gallbladder stones, neoplasia. Did I say toxins? Toxins. Yeah. And it's funny because <laughs> I think, I don't think of this as like a differential diagnosis. I almost feel like this is a comorbidity diagnosis. You know what I mean? It's yeah. Cause there's so many times. It's like that, one of those yes, things you need you to find it. out why. <laughs> right. Yeah. But you also have like this other component to it that you're like, okay, we have this and we have this. So we need to treat both of them. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to have problems. And the other thing we, we didn't talk about, which it's more of a, 
cholecystitis, then, you know, it's not a gallbladder mucosal or, or, or stone, but, um, we'll sometimes see this in ultrasound with a patient in anaphylactic shock, right? Mm. They'll have the inflammation of the gallbladder wall. They'll have that halo effect on ultrasound. And that's because of anaphylactic shock. And and if you see that halo effect, if you've ever seen it, you're like, oh, that's what they're talking about. Um, And so, you know, and, and these are patients that come in and we don't, we think they're in shock because they are, but, but we don't know what's going on. So like we see that halo and we're like, oh, wait, hold on. You know, did they get stung by a bee? Did they, um, did they get some eat a spider eat a spider yeah exactly so toxin <laughs> right so that's that toxin yeah, exactly. part of it um so that's just something to kind of keep in the back of your head um and you know it's very specific we don't see a ton of them but you you definitely can and you'll see it on ultrasound it looks it's very distinctive yeah i think i've seen it once i think i've seen it i want to say two or three times like enough to be like oh you got stung by a bee let's look at your gallbladder and I'm like, there it is, which is crazy. Right. So there's several diagnostics that we run on these patients. Obviously, we should get vital signs, TPR, checking for fever, tachycardia, tachypnea, because um, some of these patients, depending on the severity of their case, can definitely have that. But biochemistries are super important just because a lot of times we're going to see elevated liver enzymes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's super common and more so for our mucoceles, but um, our liver enzymes like our alkaline phosphatase or ALP or the gamma glutamine, glutamyl transfer, transferase, the GGT. Just GGT. Those are just, just say GGT. <laughs> well, I was trying to be, you know, trying to be, good. trying to be good. I don't think I've ever called it gamma glutamyl transferase. It's always GGT. Whereas like, no, 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 I've never called it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, you can run run an Alkfoss or GGT. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, but these two enzymes are actually cholestatic enzymes. So what they're going to tell you is if cholestasis is occurring. So, which I found this because I always knew that these were liver enzymes, but I never really knew that it was more to tell us like if the gallbladder is in stasis or not, I guess I never looked into it enough. Um, yeah, most of the time, but which totally makes sense actually. Cause we does. talk about, um, we talk about, uh, uh, Cushing's right. And, yeah. and we, and their ALPs constantly always. get patients transferred to us. Cause the, um, the general practitioners like, oh my God, the ALKFOS is elevated. And we're like, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but that actually so, makes sense why we find Cushing's with them all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. But ALP is not very specific specific for like gallbladder specific stuff, obviously. Um, just because many other factors can actually influence that number, but GGT is more specific for it, which Hmm. again, same thing. Like, well, which I guess that's cool. We've, I I don't know when I worked in general practice, like sometimes the GGT would be elevated and it would just kind of get blown off. Like LP and GGT would be elevated and it just get blown off. But now I'm like, it make total sense to actually investigate why those are a little high. Well, and I, it'd be interesting to find out like, okay, so how much stasis, right? Like if it's, if your patient is fasted in theory, you have a little bit of stasis because they're fasted. So I wonder like how, how long, like, what is the, 
what is the minimum number of hours, days, whatever it is that if you're seeing stasis, chronic stasis, like how long, mm-hmm. and it could be that yeah, that's like if- why, like we, when we recheck it and it's normal, we're like, okay, whatever. It's just a, that particular day we may have seen more stasis than others. So it's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Cause I imagine like on our hepatic lipidosis cats, we'd, we'd probably note that. Oh yeah, for sure. I've definitely seen the GGT be elevated with those guys. So these patients can actually also have hyperbilirubinemia. Um, yes, this can actually be seen because bile acids have like an erosive effect on the liver cell membranes. So like we kind of talked about in our hematology courses, when like cells get broken down, it releases heme. So I'm trying to like, I'm, I'm imagining this in my head, right? Because the liver produces the bile, uh, bile acid salts and stuff like that, that gets then put into the gallbladder for storage. So I'm picturing that it must be like, there's like almost like a backup into the liver because it can't come out. So now we're having that erosive effect because instead of being able to go where it needs to, it's just staying Mm -hmm. in the liver. Yeah. And then that's causing the T-billy elevation. Yeah. Cause yeah, then even totally like, makes sense. if you think about it, like if it can't, if the gallbladder can't even fill up a little bit more then you have backup trying to get into the gallbladder as well. Mm. And those mm-hmm. vessels and ducts are, they're a lot smaller, like, and a lot thinner that I imagine that that's probably where that bilirubin comes from. Well, and the bilirubin will, will back it up even further, right? When we talked about hematology, bilirubin is the breakdown of the heme right? Mm-hmm. Into its components. And the, that's why bilirubin is brown, right? Because of heme, the iron content. Um, so we get that increase in T-billy because instead of being able to be excreted into the gallbladder, it's backing up. And that's irritating too. Like when, when T-billy's up, that causes all sorts of irritation in the body. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. 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 And then these patients can actually also have hypoalbuminemia, but that's because again, the liver is a little sensitive. It yeah. produces albumin or since it synthesizes albumin. And so when our liver gets a little angry. Well, and they're also, they're not eating. So depending on how long they're anorexic, mm-hmm. right? Because you need nutrition, right? You have to have the nutrition, the proteins coming in to create the albumin. Like you can't just make albumin out of nothing. So if, you know, we're not eating and the liver takes nutrition to create albumin makes sense that they're also hypoalbuminemic. Mm-hmm. Hypoalbuminemic. <laughs> I know some of these big words really Ooh. get me some days and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I swear I know what I'm talking about. I mean, kind of just a little. <laughs> Sometimes I sound like I'm like mumbling and chewing bubble gum at the same time, but I'm not. What was the episode <laughs> that we did the other, like a couple oh, weeks ago? Oh my God. <laughs> last last <laughs> week's I was like, oh God, what I don't need, I know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You had to take over for me a couple times. I was like, dude, my mouth is not working. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. I said something really bizarre the other day or the other podcast episode. And I was like, oh, wow. I sound really not so smart in that one. (laughs) (laughs) So it's okay. Our brains sometimes just go, nope, I'm not doing it today. (laughs) I know. I try to edit out some of our like I so don't, don't worry for everybody who thinks we're super, super brilliant smart, moments. <laughs> we're not. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're just like we you. have so many people fooled. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's because we have great notes like these. So like our CBC counts. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I well because my plan is to be able to get these show notes up for our listeners at some point. So I'm trying to make the show notes a little bit more friendly for people. Yeah, <laughs> a little think- less abbreviations, <laughs> right? A little less of our shortcuts. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to be good. Um, anyway, so a CBC count should be done. A CBC count. A CBC should be done as well when we're running our biochemistries. (laughs) Um, Leukocytosis is commonly seen. So this is an elevated white count. uh, Leukopenia would be a low white count. So a lot of times we'll see like a mature neutrophilia. Sometimes a left shift can be seen with this as well as a monocytosis. I know I've, I always make a point to like try to understand when I'm seeing a monocytosis, like what cases. So Mm. just because it's so it's one of those like things that I want to be better at <laughs> like, oh yeah <laughs> yeah well and the the leukocytosis is happening because again you probably have well not probably you have inflammation <laughs> mm-hmm. so inflammatory cells are the the white blood cells and you pro- possibly mm-hmm. have either sepsis or you know, a a gallbladder infection, something. So your white blood cells are going to start just being reactive and, and doing what they need to be doing. Um, and that's that's why you would see a left shift. Yep. Exactly. And then of course, like if, if a gallbladder does rupture, it becomes more suspected. Like, so if you don't have access Mm to, um, an ultrasound machine, it gallbladder rupture would be highly suspected if you had much higher elevations in liver enzymes, as well as a, a pretty high leukocytosis, along with a hyperbilirubinemia. Yeah. Like if, if all of those numbers are very elevated, you can, and you're showing, your patients are showing the symptoms of like abdominal pain, fever, lethargy, vomiting, I would probably strongly suspect a gallbladder rupture. Yeah. Especially if they come in jaundice, that, that's just like a... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, canine pancreatic lipase or like a snap CPL, or we do a, oh, um, and then the, the other thing too, with, um, like a CPL, so canine pancreatic lipase or an FPL, which is the feline pancreatic lipase, um, obviously not so much in these particular patients, but like, we'll get them, um, when we do our GI lab. Mm -hmm. So we do like our, um, TLI, PLI um cobalamin and folate cobalamin folate yeah because it's less ex- i don't know about you but i think we've talked about this before it's less, it's less expensive, expensive to send the whole gi panel out than just a cobalamin to our reference lab so oh we, for sure so for we sure. just send it out yes it takes more time but we get way more information and most of our clients are totally fine with that um yeah because something as simple as like a low b12 that could help with some of these problems is mm-hmm. like you know, anyway, the gallbladder. <laughs> so one of our favorite things, cause we're in internal medicine is ultrasound. Mm-hmm. And I know you've been dying to talk about this because you want to talk about how the gallbladder oh, mucus. I, I love it. I love it. So I think, I think ultrasound is probably the best, um, 
diagnostic tool that we have for gallbladders. Yes, mm -hmm. we can look at some of the lab work and, and put all those pieces together, but really the ultrasound is going to tell us, you know, what, what does our gallbladder look like? Is there a stone present? Is there a mucosal and all that? So really ultrasound is kind of your gold standard for, for gallbladders. So, um, <clears throat> you know, we're going to look for mucosal, we're going to look for inflammation. The ultrasound can sh show us, you know, does the liver look big? So do we have hepatomegaly? Do we have ascites? Is there free fluid in the abdomen that we need to culture or not? Well, not just culture, but do we need to get a sample of that and look for bacteria? Do we, you know, do we get a sample of that and, you know, look to see if there's any T billy in that? Is it, is it ictric? Is it, you know, what's going on? We can check the gallbladder. Does it look distended? Does it have like really bright mesentery around the gallbladder? Um, mm -hmm. Because if the mesentery is really bright, that means there's inflammation there. And that could indicate that there's a rupture happening because, you know, especially if you've got like a focal area of just like mm -hmm. really bright mesentery around the gallbladder, we get worried. So, um, we look for that. We look for the measurements of the gallbladder wall. Um, we actually had a patient that had a gallbladder, um, neoplasia. And so it was really crazy looking like, um, I don't know if the gallbladder itself has names like the, the urinary bladder, but I kind of think of it that way. So it was like the apex of the gallbladder. So the part yeah. away from the duct, there was just like this really crazy thickening. Mm. Um, and it was, and we're like, oh, that looks like neoplasia because it was just this, this area of like super, super thick. Um, and you can also see stones. Like I think stones look really cool in the gallbladder like mm -hmm. you can see and I'm stone like shadow around on, yeah and stone shadow on ultrasound which is how you can help differentiate them from like sludge sludge yep. doesn't tend to shadow like stone shadow mm -hmm. um and when i say shadow it's like the ultrasound probe is on the patient and it goes it's through right white and you see yep you see a bright white stone and then below it is like almost like rays of sun but like it's it's dark Black. it's a shadow <laughs> <laughs> because, well, and if you remember like an ultrasound machine, right, it's, it's the ultrasonic waves and then mm -hmm. it bounces back. So the harder an object, the more of the ultrasound waves bounce back up to the probe. So if you've got Versus a stone, down. yeah, mm -hmm. if you've got a stone, like those waves can't penetrate the stone. So it can't see past the stone, which is why you have that blackout underneath it versus like fluid is black because nothing is bouncing back. So yeah, you know that, and, and you can, and it's the same thing in the urinary bladder from, for a lot of stones, like you'll see that shadowing mm -hmm. or for, um, foreign bodies and intestines. Um, yes. Yeah. You'll, the, you look for the shadow to, yeah. <laughs> to see. You're like, Ooh, that's not supposed to be there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you look at like, we're measuring the gallbladder wall. We're checking to see if there's any stones in there. Um, if the gallbladder wall itself is hyperechoic, so, um, it's brighter on ultrasound than quote unquote normal. Um, those are all things that we're going to be looking for with ultrasound and then a mucosal. Mucoseals are kind of cool. Um, the classic mucosal looks like kiwi or 
a tomato, like the inside of a tomato or a kiwi, if you do a cross section, that's like the Mm -hmm. classic look of a mucus seal. Not all of them look like that, but that is Mm -hmm. a fully formed mucus seal. And what happens is it reminds me of a kidney. You know how like a kidney looks on ultrasound? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's how a gallbladder mucus seal looks. They tend to be like finely striated and yeah, it's because you've got this like the center of the mucus seal is like this congealed mucus, right? We talked Mm -hmm. about that. And then there's these strands of like thick mucus that like hold that in place and like attach to the wall, almost Mm -hmm. like a spider web, but it's Mm -hmm. like this gross, it's just crazy looking. And have you ever seen a mucus seal like after they've taken it out of the gallbladder or out out of the abdomen? Because they take the whole gallbladder. You can't just remove the mucus seal. (laughs) And like put it back. No, (laughs) you got to take the whole gallbladder. It's, it's crazy because it like normally, um, when they take a gallbladder out, like you can express it really easily. And like the bile comes out these things, it's almost like, um, it's almost like a ball. Like it's kind of got that hard squishy center thing. I believe it. And it's like, you can open it and it's, it's, it's gross looking because I've done that. I'm sure you have. (laughs) (laughs) Cause it's like, you know, you got to put it in formalin and if it squishes out, like if the bile just squishes out, it fits in a smaller jar than if you can't squish it out and then it's a mucus seal and you have to put it in a bigger jar. <laughs> anyway, so the way that um, a mucus seal looks on ultrasound as well as documenting like stasis of that material within the gallbladder um, confirms a mucus seal usually. Yeah. yeah. And then um, um, usually biopsy to 1000% confirm. Yeah. Yeah. If a gallbladder is ruptured, that Mm. fluid appears echogenic um, and it can be found like around the gallbladder. Ooh, yeah. Also, sometimes so you actually won't see fluid, but like Yvonne was saying, like sometimes you'll see like focal areas of like um, inflammation on the mesentery or that hyperechoic areas on the mesentery. Um, But sometimes too, you can note like focal like thinning or like even a discontinuation of the gallbladder wall. So you're like the gallbladder supposed the to be there. But... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if I've ever seen the actual like hole. I'm think... sure. I'm sure our patients have have had that, and my doctor's probably seen it, but I don't know if yeah. I've like visualized it. Yeah, I don't know either. And there's a lot of times though too where these patients will go to surgery and the surgeon will be like, yeah, it looks like it just ruptured. Cause sometimes you don't see the fluid, like you don't see the fluid yeah. or the, like the thinning or the discontinuation of the gallbladder wall. Well, and it can be a teeny tiny hole, right? Mm-hmm. We're, just, we're just talking a pinprick hole that bacteria and bile can get out of. And that's enough to make the abdomen mad. Like it doesn't have to be like, like I think of um, like a water balloon, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's similar to what the gallbladder is like. Um, so if you've just got like a teeny tiny puncture, like I think of like, cause I used to put tape over and then poke a hole. Water balloons. Yeah. You oh, okay. That? No, no. If you put a piece of tape on there and then you poke a hole and it doesn't like the, the water balloon doesn't explode. It just leaks. Oh. Versus if like, it's a big enough hole, it just like the whole bladder just goes. Yeah, I think that's yeah. Worse. That is gross. But what I think of like, so, I mean, like imagine like how pissed off 
like the abdomen gets just because like think of those dogs who are like chronically vomiting and even if they're mm-hmm. just vomiting bile and like they get like really bad esophagitis mm-hmm. oh and mm-hmm. like that hurts i mean i've said i've done some dry heaves with some bile before so yeah yeah, yeah. i know fun. how I mean, it's just like- <laughs> unpleasant that is <laughs> yeah it's just <laughs> I can't imagine that if you have that kind of substance like on your organs where you're just supposed to have that nice like lubricating ness to your organs Ooh. that like all of a sudden they're like burning. <laughs> like, they're burning with bile on them. That's yeah, that sounds horrible. Yeah. Anyway, other tests we can do aside from ultrasonography is abdominocentesis. This can be performed in our patients that present with ascites, and that can evaluate for bile peritonitis. Um, but wait soapbox moment what's the soapbox moment for this one jordan (laughs) if these patients are yellow please check coags first check coags before poking them yes there may be fluid in the abdomen but please do not poke it before we know (laughs) that they can clot especially with the patient with an elevated t-billy make sure you get a clotting time definitely because it is common for those patients to have like concurrent coagulopathies if they're if they're jaundice so yeah don't just poke don't just talk to your doctor and be like hey wait there's more (laughs) hey wait (laughs) i've done that (laughs) like yeah yeah like can can we check clotting times please and they're like oh yeah yeah i'm like thank you yeah you can do abdominocentesis um to collect bile so like a percutaneous gallbladder aspiration which kind of weirds me out a little bit i'm not a fan that's just so scary to me well, I just, I'm like, you're going to piss off the gallbladder. Not to mention like you can't, you run the risks of like, if you're doing it with ultrasound, I mean, I guess the only time that should be done is if you're already planning on doing surgery, but like, because you run the risks of rupturing or causing a small leak. Right. I feel like the only time, the only time I've ever seen it done is while they're in surgery and like the doctor's just trying to get a sample of the bile. So yeah, I think the only time I've ever seen the percutaneous gallbladder aspiration is for um, mushroom toxicity. Like mm-hmm. the, uh, see, I'm not ECC. <laughs> so I, don't right. I think it's the amino, I can't remember what the, I mean, and, yeah. I know my ECC friends are probably yelling at their, their, right. like, <laughs> their stereo right now or their radio they're stereo they're stereo how old i am great this is another old person reference right now great thanks jordan right. <laughs> um yeah so i in, and i've seen them where they like take all of the bile out because mm-hmm. um that for mushroom toxicity right they keep reabsorbing the toxin from the gallbladder oh, yeah, yeah that makes um, sense and so they like suck out the the bile to help prevent re uh, reabsorption other than that, a percutaneous gallbladder aspiration, like my doctors don't do it just because of the risk of rupture. And, yeah. um, you know, just like, as you're doing it, like some bile getting into the abdomen, mm-hmm. but I can see like, if you have a patient that has like a really high risk of anesthesia, mm-hmm. right. And you just want to get some of the bile out. Um, like if you notice that it's, looking funky mm-hmm. i guess and you, you could just do it but well then like what if it's not obstructed but you are worried about an infection because you do this aspiration 
for an aerobic and anaerobic culture on these samples. Like, yeah. So yeah, I guess I, I guess I've never done it. Yeah. I've but, definitely, we've never done it. We've talked about it, but we've never done it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then of course, biopsy of the gallbladder wall should be performed if the patient undergoes surgery and then coagulation testing, especially if they are jaundice. And this includes a PT, APTT, and then a BMBT, buccal mucosal bleeding time. Or um, um, a viscoelastogram. Mm-hmm. Talked yeah, about please. that, depending on what you've got. In your <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> <laughs> I will keep saying it because we have one. <laughs> Lucky you. I know. Uh, but um, the gallbladder wall to the biopsy, um, I don't know about you, but we usually send the entire gallbladder out. Like we don't cut a chunk of it. We just send it all out for them to. I mean, probably, like I said, it, it's one of those things where like it goes to surgery and then eat, if, if we do get the samples, they, they come back to me in formalin already. And then I just send it right. out. Like, I don't, <laughs> like, I don't, it's not just like a little sliver. You're like, ah, it's the whole no, probably thing. Not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's one of the, like, I'm not a part of that portion of it. Right. I put it in a bag with the requisition form and send it out to the lab. Like, <laughs> ah, this is the benefit of working in surgery quite a bit. I'm like, no, no, no. We put them in formula. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So like I, I received the samples. It, hell, it could be a sliver. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't it's think the it is. whole thing. <laughs> it's crazy. Cause it is pretty small. Once there's like no bile in it. It's, it's I believe it. pretty small. Um, it reminds me of a water balloon. Of course. So treatment for these patients, um, it is common for these patients to have like concurrent hepatitis or hepatopathy, like other hepatopathies, but treatment can be managed either medically or surgically. Depending on how bad it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, Surgery, which is a cholecystectomy, is the treatment of choice for those patients who are like clinical. So they're the ones showing symptoms. Um, if they indicate like biliary inflammation or obstruction or those patients that, I mean, not, or definitely if those patients appear to have a gallbladder rupture. Yeah. Um, because and our rupture patients are at a high risk for septic bile peritonitis. Yeah. And these about. guys, it's hard because they sometimes do come in just looking super crappy, right? Like mm-hmm. they're, they're shocky. They just don't feel good. And so you're like, you know, do we try to get them a little bit more stable before surgery, but then you ha- run the risk of if they weren't ruptured, they could rupture. Mm-hmm. So we definitely, it is a conversation to be had with the client to be like, look, here's the, here's the risks, here's the benefits of either going to surgery now versus, you know, waiting, seeing if they get a little better and then going in to take it out if it's not yeah. already ruptured, obviously. Yeah. Cause um, a rupture is like an emergency situation. That is yeah. like, just put them in surgery, try to stabilize them during surgery. Yeah. Um, versus I feel the ones like who are- those ones are the, yeah. we, we, we were just talking about this at work because we, we see enough of them Mm-hmm. Then it's like, they either do amazing after like a cholecystectomy, right? Or they're just, they just tank, right? Like they, because they probably have raging pancreatitis because you've messed with the gallbladder and the bile duct, which is very close to the pancreatic duct in these patients. Yep. If it's, if it's a dog, if it's a cat, obviously it's part of it, but, um, that inflammation then causes horrible pancreatitis and then they just don't want to eat. They feel horrible. They get like, um, 
they get like the buildup of the fluid in their stomach and you're putting like a feeding tube in to aspirate. So it's just like, they, they tend to either do really, really well or just do really horribly. Um, yeah, I think, and it, and again, it, I think it depends on how stable they are going into it to Mm -hmm. see, you know, how, difficult the recovery is going to be for these patients and that's for sure a conversation that hopefully your doctor (laughs) is having (laughs) with clients to be like look you know your patient is at higher risk post-surgically because we already have like high t-billy maybe our ptptts are off or you know we're already ruptured or whatever it is i mean it's just one of those things to know that it could go really well or we could go into like a week-long hospitalization because we don't oh for sure yeah well and according to my research i mean it looks like it's usually about a week of recovery anyway just to make sure but Mm -hmm. if if we are stabilizing these patients prior to surgery we use fluid therapy to correct dehydration as well as the electrolyte imbalances that can occur Mm-hmm. Use antiemetics to control vomiting because the likelihood of these patients vomiting or feeling nauseous, even if they're not vomiting, is pretty high. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely analgesic medication for peritonitis and abdominal com- discomfort. And yeah, then, and with that, it's but, really important as technicians to be using like our pain scales to monitor them because sure. they can be extremely painful and we just don't know it. So we want to make sure that we're, we're keeping a very close eye on these guys. We have to remember in these patients though, too, that there is going to be some sort of like hepatitis or other hepatopathy. Mm-hmm. And so our medications that we use, especially like our analgesic medication might not be metabolized as well mm-hmm. as normal. So using something like a CRI might be beneficial in these patients because you can titrate it yeah. um, versus just giving them buprenex. And then they're like, knocked out because like their liver just can't metabolize it and it's lasting longer than normal like i would probably use something like a fentanyl cri on these patients that's what we do a lot of fentanyl cris um because again you can you can titrate it right Mm -hmm. and be like oh they're too sedate or oh they're painful let's turn it up so yeah we've yeah i like the i like cris because of that you can you can and you can do that with like Mind you, I think these patients are in a lot more pain that like butorphanol might not be as beneficial, but like we do butorphanol CRIs for like just sedation, mm, like mm-hmm. aspects of it. Um, and like our mildly painful patients, cause again, we're using it more for sedation. <laughs> right. Um, but these patients, these cholecystectomy patients actually do have a higher perioperative mortality rate especially immediately post-op. Yeah. Which, I mean, I've read it countless times that any patient that goes under anesthesia or under for surgery, if they're going to pass away, it's usually going to be immediately post-op, which is why we should be monitoring our patients Mm -hmm. immediately post-op. We should not be just putting them in a cage and then... Well, and that brings up a really good point. This is... um we don't focus on it a ton, but, but it's definitely mm-hmm. something to remember is your, your, your post-op period, immediately post-op, your recovery period is still part of monitoring anesthesia um, because we want to make sure that they are fully recovered before we say, oh, they're good, right? So somebody should be watching them 
you know, for an hour or two hours, very closely Mm post-op instead of, again, throwing them in a cage and be like, cool, they've recovered. Um, Because it could be Uh, like you're extubated. See ya. Right. Exactly. Like extubation doesn't mean that we're fully recovered at all. Um, it's interesting because, um, we just had an anesthesiologist, um, Mm -hmm. actually start working in my practice in the last couple of weeks. Um, and it has been definitely a, a a switch of gears for me because I'm like, Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. Um, but she'll like monitor SPO twos after extubation just to make sure that they're fully ventilating and doing what they need to do before we kind of say, okay, you're good. And it's interesting to see how many patients after extubation have lower SPO twos and require a little extra oxygen supplementation that we probably wouldn't have thought about. And it's, it's it's a trip to me. Like the, it's interesting what I'm like learning from working with her, which is really cool. Yeah. That'd be interesting, but it's even something as simple as like hypothermia. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. When you put them in the cage, their temp is 99.3, but now they're off of the heat and they're still recovering. Right. And like, we need to remember that hypothermia can actually cause, especially in our jaw as patients. And- yeah, exactly. Like if they already have coagulopathies or like are prone to having coagulopathies because we're dealing with the liver, mm-hmm. if we throw in hypothermia there, they're going to be at an increased risk of bleeding just from from being cold. Like it's so, okay. Anyway, moving on. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Um, Those were very important topics to like touch on. Well, and I think these are really critical patients post-op. So these are also not the ones that you're giving to your newbie technicians. (laughs) These are also the ones that don't come back to me after surgeries. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh you spoiled little jordan you no I, no i, I mean know, i think I it's true i think internal medicine techs depending on your clinic we do a lot of the pre pre-op stuff and then like the go home yeah. stuff but we don't necessarily do all of the crazy stuff in ccu or surgery um well yeah compared to yeah, other that and just because yeah. Just because it had surgery though, because they're at such an increase. So these patients are also at an increased risk for sepsis, post-op pancreatitis, pneumonia, bile leakage, um, because you removed the part that bile is supposed to go into. And hopefully it was, you know, sealed up correctly, but it can happen or, you, you know, like some yeah. things can happen. Yeah, exactly. But in times where, especially when they get that post-op pancreatitis, a lot of times we'll get those patients back. Mm -hmm. So it is important to know what we should be monitoring for and why some of these things could be happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And these patients really really should remain in the hospital for three to five days minimum just to monitor Mm -hmm. post-op. Yeah. Until they're eating and feeling better and doing great. Yeah. It's usually, it's usually a couple of days. Yeah. Because their, their bodies have changed and they're, they're very, sensitive. <laughs> well, and it's a, it's a major um, surgery. This isn't, this isn't little. <laughs> no, 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 for sure. Like the gallbladder might be little, but this is like, <laughs> it's a this is a big deal. Life event for the, the body. Yes. <laughs> it's funny too. Cause like when we do refer these to surgery, we're like, yeah, the surgeon's just going to pluck out the gallbladder and then like, we'll be in recovery. And we're like, we make it sound so easy when in reality, like there's all these ducks that go to the gallbladder and like, there's all this stuff that we know about, but we're just like, well, 
I need surgery. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Anyway, if um, clients do decide to manage these patients medically, so that would be, we kind of lean towards this if patients are non-clinical. At times they can benefit from choleretic medications. So these are the medications like ursodeoxycholic acid. You like that? I did a good job on that one. Wow. I'm like ursodile. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) <laughs> so ursodial could be considered twice daily with food. And ursodial is interesting because what it does, um, cause I, I was like, what does it actually do? So what it does is it, um, it, it helps bring water to mm-hmm. the gallbladder and makes the bile acid more liquidy. So we talked yeah. about that earlier is that, you know, for some reason, if there's less water in the gallbladder or in the bile, then that becomes more mucousy and sludgy and stuff like that. So ursile literally just makes it so there's more fluid, more liquid in our bile to help express it out of the gallbladder. So it just, in theory, You're can thinning help. the bile. Yeah, it like. can help break it down. So it, this isn't something that happens right away, but like you can monitor a couple of weeks, a month, and and you'll mm-hmm. see that it can help. But then it hasn't shown to break down a mucosal, but it can no. help prevent it from getting worse. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 And I talk about that a little bit more. So we <laughs> also use, <laughs> we also use Sam E, which I didn't even remotely try to not abbreviate that one, but for the brand name, it's Denimarin. <laughs> yeah. And this is an um, antioxidant. Yep. And this is going to be once daily on an empty stomach. And it's important unless you have the chewable tablets, like your clients are not supposed to be cutting these tablets in half and giving them like half twice a day, or they're not supposed to be buying the larger size and giving a quarter tablet. Like Sammy does not work if you cut the tablets. Right. Unless you get the chewables. The chewables are meant to be cut. (laughs) As I say, it's an antioxidant. So as soon as it's exposed to air, Yep. We're kind of effectively removing it, which is why they're coated in that yeah, exactly. blue coating. <laughs> and then they're giant. Um, but yeah, you give it on an empty stomach because it helps with the, the liver absorb it better to yeah. antioxidant, which again, to help protects the liver from injury liver. that can yep. be caused by, yeah. And, and the injury can be caused by the bile acids that are retained from the bile stasis. So don't cut Sammy, please. But the chewable tablets are nice because you, you can do like a quarter tablet once a day. Yeah. I don't, I, I think it's because they bind the Sam E part into little micro encapsulated things inside I the think, chew tablet. I think that's what they do. Yeah. It'd Which be interesting. Kind of a trip. And then antibiotics are used in these patients as well, just because again, biliary stasis can contribute to secondary bacterial infections, like we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in our hyperlipidemia patients, low-fat diets are beneficial. And when we talk about low-fat diets, we're talking like between seven and fifteen percent fat content should be considered. Obviously, the lower the better. I think what uh, Hill Science diets like ID low fat is two or three percent. Yeah, I can't remember. And I this is important for clients to understand that most over-the-counter quote-unquote low-fat diets are not going to necessarily be low enough fat for these Mm -mm. patients. And it's important to remember, um, 
the dry matter analysis versus, you know, what it says on the can. Like, remember that whole, like, if you remember nutrition, which again, I'm not a nutrition person, but I remember it vaguely is you want to look at like for like and not with the water added and all that stuff. So it's, it's important to look at that. And when we say like low fat chicken. (laughs) Yeah. If you read the cans carefully though, like some of the over the counter brands are very, very sneaky with their wording. Mm -hmm. They'll say like, it'll say like greater than 15% or like up to 27% fat. Like they won't actually tell you how much mm-hmm. fat is in the food. It's very, it's very mind blowing. Cause someone was like, well, this one says 15%. I'm like, it says like about 15%. Like they're not actually telling you how much fat's in the can of food. Yeah. It depends. Like, because they guarantee it to be around this much, which means yeah. it's either a minimum or a maximum of that amount, whichever, you know, depending on how they label it. Yeah. It's, oh yeah. It's kind of a trip. A lot of them say like minimum 15%. And I'm like, that's awful. Like, so you like, could so it have could be 70% 30? fat in here. <laughs> like, could right. you imagine like your can is just lard and like, it's oh just, my God, that's horrible. <laughs> yeah. It, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and this too, like when we say like, cause a lot of people will do the, um, chicken rice cottage cheese. So mm-hmm. again, chicken boiled chicken, take the skin off. And then and the white low meat, fat or the dark fat cottage cheese and don't add spices to it and all that stuff because <sighs> I don't know how, I don't know about your clients, but I've had many a client tell me that they get the like Costco rotisserie chicken. And I'm like, yeah. oh, please don't give that to your dog. That is, that is not a low fat diet. <laughs> yeah. It's like di- literally like dipped in butter and then put I know. on a little like, rotisserie oh, thing. Like, like, stop it. Yeah. yeah, it tastes super good because it's covered in fat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's amazing. So um, bland, boiled chicken, no skin added, no, no salt. Which is a shame because the skin is the best. Mm. I love the skin on the chicken. That's like my favorite part about Thanksgiving is peeling the skin off the turkey, like right when it comes out of the oven. Like I'll literally burn my fingertips for it. I love it. Nope. I peel it off. I love it. Anyway, um, (laughs) however, (laughs) with medical management, it actually is uncommon for a mucosal to resolve um, and progression usually occurs and will typically require surgical correction at some point. However, if medical management is successful in resolving a mucosal, it's rare to reoccur. So Mm. there's that slim chance, but if it can happen, it won't happen again. That's good. As long as you continue with the medications and low fat diets. Yeah. Yeah. And you check Um, up on it. (laughs) Yeah. So client communication is pretty big on this just because we're going to like, if, especially if we're doing medical management, Yvonne already kind of talked about like, if we are going to move forward to surgery, just talking with clients about the risks and complications of surgery and just like how touch and go very much, it very well could be. But if medical management is chosen, um, it's recommended to monitor that mucosal every six weeks for either progression or response to medications um, with an ultrasound. And then antibiotics should be continued for four to six weeks after surgical intervention, possibly longer if surgery is not performed. So again, these yeah. are one of those clients that we need to tell them 
And it's important too to remember, um, especially if surgery or like a percutaneous gallbladder aspirate is done, to make sure that we culture and that mm-hmm. we're on the right antibiotic and that clients understand this is long-term antibiotics. This isn't like a, a one-week course and then we're done. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah, really exactly. important. Just because the dog is feeling good. That. Right. Yeah. Just because, yeah, the classic, like the dog's so much better better after 10 days like yeah but don't stop the antibiotics i hate when clients um, do that I'm like no 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 follow the directions <laughs> yeah right, right um i like to discuss symptoms that clients might notice at home if medical management is the chosen route so we mm. want them to look out for you know those vague symptoms lethargy decreased appetite vomiting diarrhea abdominal pain anytime um, they look yellow yeah definitely <laughs> That's just a minor thing to look for. It's minor. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, strict diet if the dog is, if the patient's hyperlipidemic. Because um, again, we want to reduce that fat content. So this is not one of those cases where it's like, yeah, feed low fat, but then for a snack, they get like rotisserie <laughs> chicken oh, or pig's ears snacks. or <laughs> like pork rinds. Right. Um, but yeah, free, frequent rechecks are usually needed on these patients, um, especially yeah. if medical management's the chosen route. I have a couple of cautions for these mm. patients. We kind of touched on them a little bit, but if the patient has a biliary obstruction, including from a gallbladder mucosele, they are at an increased risk for bleeding tendencies. So even if we, if you check coags though, and they're normal prior to surgery, um, hmm. it's still recommended to give like a preoperative vitamin K injection, but the bleeding tendencies are due to like vitamin K malabsorption. And like I said, that can be corrected if you just give vitamin K injections as just a precaution to avoid a problem during surgery. That's interesting. Cause I don't think we do that. Hmm. Well, I think it's a little scary just because it's a fat soluble. So you can overdo vitamin K. Yeah. Um, but if you're just like, from what I was reading, it sounds like people, it was kind of recommended to give like two or three doses prior to surgery to avoid complications, even if coags are normal. If, if there's an obstruction, like if you know that there's an obstruction. Hmm. I'll have to, I'll have to talk that over with my doctor. That's kind of a cool one. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's one of those things that can like rapidly change. Yeah. And then, um, Additionally, like patients who are jaundiced from obstruction are more at risk for anesthetic complications mm. like cardiac mm. dysfunction, hypotension, renal ischemia. So monitoring these patients closely during surgery is definitely needed. This is another kind of a trip that um, I've learned about is that it, um, our anesthesiologist, I don't know about you, but I was always taught that a map of 60 is the minimum you want. She actually says it's a map of 80 to prevent kidney damage and stuff during anesthesia. I was say, I think I, I learned like, 80. What? Really? I was I always taught so. 60. Hmm. Interesting. But anyways, she says 80 and I'm like, that's amazing. I love it. So it's the tip of the week. So this week's tip of the week is it's really important for us to remember that these diseases can progress. So it's important to monitor um, and not ideally we try our best not to lose them to follow up because that's unfortunately can definitely sometimes happen 
Um, cholecystitis typically has a cause for the inflammation. So we, we need to look at that. We need to see if we can, um, you know, figure out the underlying cause of the inflammation. Um, a mucosal rarely resolves on its own. It usually progresses, but if a client, you know, again, high anesthetic risk, older patient, they don't necessarily want to do surgery. We could try it, see if it works. Um, but again, close monitoring. You're going to want to read um, the patient's chart. So if they're they're coming back that might be exhibiting some some similar symptoms, you want to be aware of what your possible next steps for diagnostics or treatments, um, because they can, they could come in as a, a medical emergency. And so we just want to make sure that we keep a close eye on these guys. So that is our tip of the week is more, you know, client communication and um, long-term medical management. And now for the question of the week. So with, um, this week's question of the week is, so with everything that we've talked about in this episode, um, what uh, if, you know, if your personal pet, like your personal pet at home developed a mucosal, how would you handle it? Would you start medications since you could, you know, hopefully, hopefully you're going to be a good client <laughs> and do follow up and you can recognize symptoms or would you move straight to surgery? Like, you know, what, you know, and, and tell us why your reasons, you know, is it your pet's younger, it's older, you have insurance, you don't have insurance. Yeah. And let's know. say that like, we're not, we're not really showing drastic situ- like symptoms, like, but we see that a mucosal is developing. We're right. like that it's middle not a of the ruptured road. yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not obvious. Yeah. It's I'm thinking just like, like it, oh, we can we tell that there's, yeah. Like we're kind of asymptomatic. Maybe we came in for like Cushing's disease or something like that, or Maybe because we're tech, it was just one of those things. Let's play around and look. And like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, how many times we find things? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that. I mean, that's a good question. I think right. Uh, I'll put my uh, I'll put my answer in somewhere. Yeah, uh, I'll probably answer in the it Facebook maybe. book group. Yeah, I'll answer it somewhere too. I got to think about it. I wrote this question, and I got to think about it. I know <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah. All right. Well, that, um, that is a lot for the gallbladder Mm -hmm. this week. Um, we hope you learned a little bit, um, let us know what your, what your thoughts are. Um, and then just a reminder to, uh, check out the membership. So internal medicine for vet text membership.com. Um, and you know, let us know what your thoughts are and what you would potentially want to see in a membership. Cause again, we're making this so we can, we can kind of do whatever we want. <laughs> um, but yeah, anything else you can think of for this week, Jordan? Nope. I think that's it. All right. You guys have a wonderful week. Make sure you, you know, keep getting your learn on and, uh, we'll talk to you next week. All right, guys. guys. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettex.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.